0: with uh, Randy and Howard here with the BAT podcast, and we are very uh, happy and humbled today to have an amazing guest. We have Mr. Bob Lutz with us. He needs no introduction, uh, has been all over the car uh, universe for many decades, and uh, we are excited that he's part of the BAT community. Mr. Lutz, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hey, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Our pleasure. Absolutely. I know you've uh, known uh, Howard and the Swig family for a long time. And then one thing that has come about more recently is uh, you have a vehicle that we're about to list on BAT, which we're excited about, which is an old uh, Pinsgauer military vehicle. Can you tell us why on earth you have one of those and how that came to be?
1: Well, I always like those because uh, uh, it's compared to military vehicles that we've had in the United States, like you know, uh original military Jeeps or later model Wranglers or even uh, Hummer, military Hummers, uh, while they looked impressive, they really weren't very effective in rugged terrain, uh, especially the, the Hummer was much too wide and much too low, and it didn't have hub reduction. So just like um, normal construction trucks, which... Need to have the road scraped constantly because otherwise the the banjo of the rear axle hangs up on the dirt Uh, European off-road vehicles tend to have hub reduction on all four corners and that's from the axle shafts There's an aluminum casting with a gear train in it so that the actual uh, actual wheel axle comes out about six to seven inches below the normal drive shaft. And that is called hub reduction. And uh, there's straight cut gears in there, which are very redu- robust, but they do produce uh, quite a bit of singing noise at about 55 or 60 miles an hour on the freeway, which is about as fast as you want to go with it anyway.
0: I so, love it. Have, have you driven that thing 50 or 60 down the freeway in, uh, in Michigan or in the countryside? Or what's the, what's the story on that vehicle with you? And how long have you had it?
1: I've had it. uh, Let's see. I guess since about since since it became legal, so seventy three plus twenty six years was ninety three plus. I guess I've had it since about ninety six, and uh, used it off road. And my my special treat was after a heavy snowfall in the winter, when there was about fourteen or fifteen inches of snow on the ground. Uh, we take it out on roads that hadn't been plowed yet and uh, put it in four by four. And of course, it not only has a five-speed manual gearbox, but a low range. And when you put it in low range, first gear, you can almost, and leave it at idle, you can almost walk alongside it. It's uh, so so low, uh, so, so heavily reduced. And it's... Um, <clears throat> It also has a rear locking diff, a center locking diff, and a front locking diff. And with all the diffs locked and in low range, uh, that thing will practically cr- uh, climb vertical walls. So I have never even come close to being stuck with that thing. And it's, it's very modern. It's a, a torqued, an aluminum torque tube chassis, fully independent suspension, dual coil-overs, fore and aft, uh, which always, when I take it to a motorcycle shop, the bike guys all crawl under it and say, oh, wow, look, dual coil-overs. Uh, they get all excited. So it's, and it, the vehicle is largely aluminum. Engine is aluminum, so it, uh, it's helicopter transportable. So it, it's an exciting vehicle. The only reason the Swiss Army got rid of them was, because they're leaded fuel only. And with the transition to unleaded, they didn't think they could use them anymore. But since it's an aluminum engine, it's obviously got bronze valve inserts. So it's perfectly okay with with unleaded. I've been running it on unleaded for years, of course. I haven't put many miles on it. I think the total mileage on it is something like about 20,000 miles now, no more. The Swiss Army had put like 12,000 on it. And I'll tell you what, the Swiss Army maintains its vehicles and airplanes better than factory fresh. They're almost like in a totally recently restored condition. Um, That's because uh, the people who are in charge of them are graded on the maintenance of the vehicles, and the uh, master sergeants and captains in charge walk around with white gloves, and these things are cleaned with toothbrushes. So, you buy something from the Swiss Army, you know it's going to be great. Low mileage, and uh, and it's a, it's a superb technology vehicle. It's probably, uh, I always used to hope that when I drove it around to the grocery store, I was always hoping that somebody in a Hummer H2 would say, what the hell is that? And I'd say, that, this, you know, the old, crocodile Dundee line when he says, you call that a knife? This is a knife. I say, you call that a sport utility? This is a sport
2: utility. That's fantastic. And, and, and by the time this podcast airs, your, your Pinsgauer should, should be up and live on the site. So I'm sure that'll generate a ton of interest. Uh, I'd love to know, Bob, but when I came to see you uh, 10 or 12 years ago, you uh, met me outside the gate of your fantastic property there outside of Ann Arbor or Saline or thereabouts. Um, in your gorgeous 62 Skylark convertible. So I think uh, our audience would love to know, I mean, you, you, got, you got the Pinsgauer, um, you got that great Skylark. What other cars are sitting in your garage and w- what do you like to play with personally?
1: Well, I've, I've got a Cunningham C4R continuation model, you know, actually made by Cunningham Motors in Connecticut with an original 1952 uh, 331 Hemi um, except it's got Weber carburetors and um, uh, produces 400 horsepower in a 2,000-pound aluminum car sitting on you know the old uh, skinny Dunlop R1 racing tires. So it, when you when you go out to drive it, you do have to wait until the rubber warms up, or you put yourself sideways real quick. But uh, that's that's a lot of fun, and of course that was produced for Le Mans and other sports car races in 1952. So while it looks a little bit like an AC Cobra, it was actually designed and built 12 years before the Cobra. So it was really Brix Cunningham who had the original idea of, uh, doing a high performance sports car, but using a large American engine instead of a highly tuned European engine. And, uh, I'm sure that Carroll Shelby was um, inspired by the example of the Cunningham C4. So I've got one of those. I've got. I also have a continuation uh, Autocraft Cobra, black with a tan interior, which is with a Ford Ford engine. Very nice car. Uh, I've got my dad's 1952 Aston Martin DB2 uh, Vantage in absolutely mint, original, exactly as he ordered it from the factory condition. I've got a 34 LaSalle convertible in Diana cream with um, sort of dark, dark tan uh, leather upholstery, exactly like my parents had in in 1934. So that's actually the first car I remember. Then I've got a 71 Monteverdi 375 high-speed coupe in dark blue with light bone-colored upholstery, which is a phenomenal phenomenal combination. Then uh, that's a very nice car with a a Chrysler 440 wedge and a 3-speed torque flight transmission. Then I've got a uh, oh, yeah, a, a 1971 uh, Intermeccanica Italia Roadster um, silver and with red leather upholstery. I bought it restored, uh, and uh, but it, it wasn't running. And the reason it wasn't running is, and I'm sure the owner put it up for auction because nobody could get it running, and I had it to one or two people who were supposedly knew what they were doing and every time you you be out on the road for 15 minutes it would start to misfire well a good friend of mine who is um, an executive in a in a in the u.s subsidiary of an America or US subsidiary of a German company but is also a trained mechanic figured it out in about five minutes and that's that the spark plug wires were shorting against various metal parts, including the exhaust system. So he just rerouted all the spark plug wires to where they were well away from everything else, and that solved the problem. And now it's a wonderful, wonderful car. Then I've got um, a, um, a, a, a VLF Destino, which was the car that I we produced about a dozen of with my partner before our source of bodies and chassis dried up. And it's basically a Fisker Karma with all of the electricals ripped out, batteries ripped out, and everything, everything replaced uh, with a Chevrolet Corvette LS nine drivetrain. So it's a your basic 650 horsepower, four door family sedan. We also changed the front end to provide a nice grill opening new rear end to accommodate exhaust, new hood with a power dome to clear the engine. But that is one fantastic four-door sedan, and it's one of the only ones in the world. And that's a sort of a very brilliant fire frost silver with a pumpkin pie-colored interior, leather interior, uh, which was the original Fisker interior. We didn't touch that. In fact, we didn't touch the exterior color scheme either and then we get around to the modern cars i've got um, a two solstice roadsters a silver one and a red one a very rare black solstice turbo coupe black on black with the general motors chip in it so it's got 300 horsepower um, and uh, it's an extremely fast car there were only five built in that combination uh, that is GXP five-speed, so a coupe. Now, oh, that's rare. Uh, and then we get over into the Corvettes. I've got uh, a 2000, uh, 2010 ZR1, um, dark metallic gray with black interior and uh, sort of d- dusky metallic gray wheels, which um, is a very subdued color combination which is the way I like my Corvettes. I, I don't like my Corvettes in yellow or metallic blue or red. Um, they're just too loud. But if you pick silver or metallic gray or black, uh, they become very European looking, which I like. And then I have a, a recently acquired um, uh, C8, which is one of the very rare, 2020 c8s there weren't many 20s made and mine is a an interesting color it i wanted dark metallic gray like my zr1 and when it was delivered i saw it in the sunshine and it was a dark metallic blue and uh the minute the sun went away it turned back into dark metallic gray so that's a very interesting flip flop color depending on how the light shines on it. I love it, and it's it's got um it's got the maximum uh, what what do they call it the uh, General Motors calls it its marquee Corvette interior which is a very very light beautiful creamy uh, sort of bleached bone colored leather uh, with some you know uh, carbon fiber bits but it's Really, really a lovely combination. So that's about it. I mean, I I won't count the uh, modern-day GMC pickup and my new GMC Yukon Denali XL, also with the Maximum Interior, which is uh, an absolutely phenomenal vehicle. So I've I've gotten rid of some old stuff that I never really drove, like my 1952 Citroën uh, 15 dash six and, uh, and I've, I've kind of, uh, I've, I'm not adding to cars, but I'm tending to get rid of older ones that I don't like driving much. Uh, and I replace them with newer cars that are a thrill to drive. So that, that explains the ones you've never seen
2: Howard. No, that's fantastic. You know, I think if you got all the guys in the world who owned a C4R, a Pinsgauer, and a Monteverdi, it'd be a pretty small list. <laughs>
1: yeah, and and, a, and an Intermeccanica Italia. I was
2: I was going
0: to say. I mean, it kind of seems like with those marks and those names, uh, which we've featured a bunch uh, of interesting ones like that on BAT before, are are you liking those sort of models, those sort of esoteric, low production models, because of some personal connection to them, or do you just kind of like having models nobody else, you're not going to see coming the other direction on the uh, on the interstate? Or what makes you go after or, or own you know a Monte Verde or an Intermechanica or even the even the Cunningham?
1: Good good question. I tend to buy stuff that I admired when I was young and couldn't afford it, you know, and that probably makes me like most guys. And I have an absolute weakness for high-performance cars that look European or were built in Europe, but which have American engines. For instance, uh, on my wish list, which I, I sadly don't have one, but I would love to have an Rivolta or an Rivolta Stradale with the, with, uh, the, with a, uh, the roadster top. So here's an Italian chassis built by Bizzarini with all the good Italian bits. And instead of some high strung uh, multi cam Italian engine, it's got a good old 350, uh, yeah, good old 350 Chevy Corvette engine. So it can be uh, maintained by, by any Chevrolet dealer. So I, I've always loved the oddball cars. And. Um, I do the same with watches. You know, I was, I was probably the only corporate officer at Chrysler that didn't have a gold Rolex. Um, why did, why I didn't have a gold Rolex was because it became sort of, uh, the visual manifestation of I'm successful. If you don't believe it, look at my gold Rolex. And nowadays it's I'm successful. If you don't believe me, Look at my two Porsche 911s and my old Ferrari. And so these th- these cars that everybody else collects, I have no interest in. And I don't collect them for the appreciation. I, I collect them because I've
0: always wanted no, that makes That makes perfect sense. I, I have some weird stuff, too. And Howard, as you know, has some interesting cars. And, and we've both kind of dabbled in that as well. So it's. Super interesting to hear that, but I love those names, and I love that people are enthusiastic about them. Um, and uh, just the the visual that you have potentially those cars out on the road, and you're out, you know, shifting the gears in those cars uh, makes me really happy. And everybody has always associated you with, you know, being sort of the car enthusiast amongst so many of the corporate ranks. I think that uh, I was counting your cars on my fingers as you were listing them off, and I ran out of fingers. So I mean, you got plenty of interesting. Uh, stories and stuff there that is is really fun to really fun to hear about I think uh, I mean you mentioned one of them was your your dad's Aston which is kind of an amazing story Um, do you think you know from very very early on very young age you knew because of the cars around you that you wanted to get into the car industry or did it just sort of sort of happen that way
1: well I had two uncles Uh, one was my dad's older brother who was a total car nut I mean he married wealthy women just so he could afford his car hobby, and uh, he had a four-liter DeLay uh, Henri Chapron coupe, with, uh, which uh, uh, he had bought from Formula One driver Louis Chiron. Uh, I mean, he, he had just a, a, he had a, a double Lago coupe. Uh, another uncle, my mother's my mother's younger brother, uh, husband of my mother's younger sister, had uh, a Dalbolago Porto Coupe silver with red upholstery. So I was always surrounded by great stuff. And, um, but beyond that, I, I, I was just always fascinated by cars. I think by the time I was three, I could identify just about every car on the road in the United States at that time. Uh, I could point to it and say, you know, 1932 Ford, 1931 Chevy, 1929 Dodge. And uh, my mother would say, how do you know this? And I said, well, I asked dad and he told me. And once once I had it down, once it was in my head, it never left. And uh, it, it's kind of been that way ever since.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, Howard, I think you wanted to jump in and maybe ask him a, a couple of things about uh, where that led in terms of industry.
2: Yeah, Bob, I'd love to ask you, you know, we, we can talk about some of the stuff you did kind of later on in your career um, in the 80s and 90s, but I would love to go back to the early 60s. Uh, you started out as an executive, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, at General Motors uh, in the 60s and, and really the golden era of that company. You know, We see every day people on BAT and in the collector world more generally you know, going crazy for the best stuff from that period. And, and the option sheet and how you could spec out your car in, in so many configurations that were optioned by the factory, Vets and Novas and Chevelles and on and on. So I think we'd love to hear, you know, whatever you'd want to share war stories. What was it like? Um, I mean, you, you were an executive and, and sold and marketed all that stuff brand new. Um, and I don't know how many people are still around that, that can speak to that uh, from firsthand experience. So uh, anything you can share with the audience about oh. what that period was like would, would be awesome.
1: Well, my first sort of operating job was uh, I was um, after the, the duty 18 months spent at General Motors Overseas Operations Central Office in New York. I was shipped off to Adamopolake, which at that time, of course, was General Motors' largest overseas subsidiary. And uh, I was assigned the glorious title of Assistant to. The assistant to the managing director, which was an interesting job because, um, my my job was basically to assist my boss, be the administrative assistant, write his speeches, prepare meetings for him and everything. But that didn't really give me enough to do. And I could see that Opal, other than the guys in design who were American, um, set over by Bill Mitchell on sort of training assignments and that all, the, all the great later designers like Claire McKeekin and Dave Holes and um, um, uh, others who I'll think of it, Charlie Jordan, they they, they all spent time at Opal uh, in a job of chief designer at Opal. And so I, I found out that there was no product planning function. Um, nobody thought... What the next model should be, the the sales guys were clueless. They they were they were there was no concept of marketing, no knowledge of the market. Uh, everything was just move the iron, move the iron. Didn't matter what it looked like. And um, I started getting interested, you know, working with engineering and asking why don't we do this, why don't we do that. i I'd, I'd go over to design and. Uh, talk to the designers and try ideas on them. And one day over in design, I saw a clay model off in a corner. And it was a clay model, of the original design proposal for an Opel GT. And I said, wow, what happened to that? Well, nobody wanted to do it and so forth. So I found out that there was a, engineering had done a prototype. And we pulled that out. And I got to drive that. And then I started lobbying for production and we put a whole product plan together and it finally resulted in production of the Opel GT, which was uh, kind of central. It never made any money, but it was central in transforming the image of Opel from a producer of dull pedestrian mom-and-pop cars into doing something interesting. And that was followed by... whole series of sports derivatives of the regular family sedans. Uh, We did uh, high performance versions of the Opel Cadet, which sales hated, Um, but the first year's production sold out the the day we announced it in the press. And uh, my, My goal was to transform Opel from a brand that people were willing to have because it was the company car into a brand that was aspirational, that people would actually, on their own, pay good money for. And that meant creating a more sporting image. But it was, uh, the problem wasn't so much with the American bosses who uh, would basically look at me and say, well, how can you be so sure? And I'd say, because I know. And if you don't ask me, ask the guys over in design. And there was a, I will say, a small, call it almost a mafia of car guys at Opel at various levels. Some of them were even in finance. So uh, those of us who were car guys would get together on a routine basis, usually for lunch someplace, and we'd scheme the future. And then we'd figure out how to get it adopted by the big system and we routinely outmaneuvered the big system and then uh, i got myself appointed secretary of the new vehicle planning committee and as secretary i wrote the agenda and i wrote the minutes so those meetings kind of came out pretty much oh and then the finance guys that were in on the scheme were the ones that ran the numbers. So it pretty much gave us it gave the this uh, inner group that we we didn't have a name for. But one day, my boss, who was a, uh, a former general sales manager of Buick and a wonderful guy, but He was just a sales guy through and through. To him, being in sales and marketing meant that you talked dealers into taking 10 more than they wanted to take. And he kept asking me, why are you spending so much time over in design? I said, "I, I spent time in design and engineering, even though, you know, nominally, by this time I was in marketing. Nominally, I'm not supposed to have anything to do with it, but if I don't work forward and make sure that the next generation products are highly saleable, I, I feel I'm ab, 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 abrogating my duty. And the more I exercise my influence early on and the other guys influence their uh, exercise their influence early on, the better the product we get and the better they're going to sell. And he says, well, I don't know. I mean, Back at General Motors, we let the designers design and the engineers engineer, and the rest of us just went around, went about our jobs, but this business of finance guys, marketing guys, human resources guys, designers, designers talking about engines, finance guys talking about transmissions, transmission guys talking about interiors, it's just. It's just wrong. And I said, well, Jim, you know, it's look at the stuff we've done so far. It all works. He says, yeah, I know, but it's just against my better nature. It's just too many cooks, too many cooks, too many goddamn cooks. So we finally had a name for our little organization, and we called it the Too Many Cooks Club. And the designers in the club uh, did uh, – A jacket patch for us, which had, it said, too many cooks and had an opal emblem in it and cross wooden spoons. And we all tried to wear that to the meeting. But it was sort of the the very beginnings of an organization working cross functionally to define the product very early in the process and take a lot of waste out of the system. So we we didn't know we were charting new territory, but it obviously worked.
0: I love it. What what an amazing story! Thank you for sharing. If I if we had guessed that we would have gotten deep into the rabbit hole of Opal GTS, I never could have even come up with that. I didn't realize you had such a close uh, connection there. I've I've had my hands on a. Saab Sonnet on one side and a Datsun 240Z on the other. And I've never had uh, my actual hands on the steering wheel of an Opel GT, but I sounds like you drove the prototype and you put, you put some miles on those yourself, is that right?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, Hans Herrmann, who was a renowned German uh, touring car and even at times Formula One driver, and he, he knew the Nürburgring backwards and forwards, at one point when we decided to go into production, <coughs> engineering wanted to use the normal Opal Cadet 1900cc chassis and engine position, <coughs> and in the uh, standard Opals, uh, even though they were rear-wheel drive, but the engine was sort of positioned way forward. <coughs> And it was positioned over the front crossmember. As is the usual practice, the front front crossmember had sort of a, a dip in it to to clear the front part of the oil pan. And the engine sat way forward, but it also sat relatively high. And what the prototype GT had, and the ultimate production GT, was the Corvette formula of... Uh, a front mid-engine where you move the engine aft way back in, in back of the front, cross, front suspension crossmember, and then you can drop it down like about five inches, and you get a very low center of gravity. Well, engineering said it's it's additional tooling money, additional engineering. Uh, it's a waste of money. The public can't tell the difference. And I said, well, I'll bet you if we do a back-to-back high-performance test on a handling track, uh, the difference will become obvious very quickly because the one with the high center of gravity and the engine way forward probably is very far away from a 50-50 weight distribution, probably got 62% on the front wheels, 40% on the rear wheels. You're going to get all kinds of wheel spin, uh, understeer when you're heading into a, into a corner and so forth. No, 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 we can fix all that with chassis tuning and so forth. And I, and I said, tell you what, when you do your next engineering cars, do one the way you want it and do an identical one with a center mid-engine. And then I'm not going to evaluate them, but we'll get a good a good professional evaluator to evaluate them on the Nürburgring, and we won't tell them which one is which. So you tune... You tune the crap out of the the, the very front-engine one and do the best you can on the mid-engine one, but get them to the, where they are visually identical and, as far as you're concerned, identical in ride and handling. So I went out. Uh, it was a rainy day on the Nürburgring, which is a little bit scary, and Hans Hermann was already waiting for me there. Engineers had offloaded the two Opel GTs, and we took we took off in the first one and i didn't know which is which one is which and hans hermann did like amazing lap times in the rain uh, with both of them and he pronounced them both to be very sanitary but his lap time was about 20 seconds better in the center mid engine one and especially when you know when we in tight corners, uh, the, the the one with the high center of gravity and with the engine placed way forward, and especially in the rain, that one got more wheel spin coming out of corners, and it tended to understeer more going into corners. So Hans Hermann wrote, uh, he said, "Look, I'm I'm going to exaggerate this a little bit because I, I know what you want, and I'm with you. The car needs to be." front mid engine not with that engine perched high over the front axle so he he wrote up a report saying the while they were both good and both commercially acceptable but since we were doing a sports car and we're going to be looking for uh, you know favorable media reviews he uh, based on his doing about 10 laps each on the nürburgring in the rain he would urge that we do the center mid-engine. And that report was circulated at Opel, and it kind of left engineering with no choice.
0: Fantastic. I love it. I had no idea Hans Herrmann had ever had ever tested those, and I, I bet most people don't. I don't know how much that was part of the uh, press release, but it sounds like there was some amazing sort of skunkworks things going on. So, yeah, we've listed, I just checked, we've listed uh, over a dozen Opel GTs on BAT. They still transact, and there's some people that love those, and the funky uh you know flip over headlights and all the other features of those what an interesting vehicle so uh, moving on from those then then uh yeah obviously gm was a huge world beyond that and beyond the opal division and your uh, little club that you had there that you told us about where did um what were some other models maybe from that era either either before you went over to bmw or as you moved over to bmw i i just love hearing this i love hearing that the opal gt was a Milestone for you, and hearing what maybe some of those other milestone projects were that you worked on that that uh, had had sort of light bulb moments like the like the uh, mid engine you're talking about. What was the next? I mean,
1: at uh, still at, at Opel, or uh, when I got to BMW.
0: Uh, let's talk about BMW. We have so many BMW fans on the site. Let's jump there. Yeah, tell us about some well, of the projects there.
1: BMW had uh, three very successful cars. They had the big one, the big six-cylinder, which was known as BMW Bavaria in the U.S. Uh, they had the 1600 series and the 2002s, which were the, the small ones, and in between they had the old BMW 2000, which was available with an 1800cc engine, a 2-liter engine, and a 2-liter engine with uh, two twin-throat Webers, uh, and that was called the TI, uh, uh, 2000 TI, and of course there was also a 2002 TI, and ultimately a 2002 uh, Turbo, which was recently written up in Keith Martin's sports car newsletter, where I made a, an editorial contribution at Keith Martin's request. Uh, but when I got to BMW, it was kind of, they were living off of the initial set of cars that had been designed in Italy by by Pietro Frua. So, the, two, the 1600, the 2002, the 2000, and the BMW Bavaria, which was called the 2500 or 3 liter in Europe, they were all, and, and the big coupe, they were all italian frua designs and bmw had severed their relationship with frua and they decided that they were going to do it on their own and they had a, a very senior body engineer by the name of uh, hofmeister who fancied himself to be a designer so when i got to bmw i was head of global sales and marketing i was an executive vp at I met with my guys the first week, and they, I said, so how's it going? And they said, well, the stuff we're selling right now is pretty good, and it's moving, and the image is good, and there's a high demand. But, Mr. Lutz, you've got to get yourself into body engineering and look at the replacement of the 1600-2002. And I said, why? And they said, it is so awful, it's beyond belief. I said, well, how does something like that happen? And they said, well, engineering's cooking it up all by themselves. They're not showing it to anybody. They're not showing it to anybody in senior management because they say it's not finished. I said, well, I'll I'll, I'll figure out a way to look at it. So I went to see it, and standing in a little room, like, like a small bedroom, was this absolutely perfect yellow, Boxy car, with beautiful paint. All the chrome was real. The wind, the windows, was all glass. And I said to Hofmeister, I said, "Was well, this a real car?" He said, "No. It's a, it's a wood model." I said, "What?" He said, "Yeah." Um, I said, "Don't you use clay?" Oh, I said, "No, no. That's not precise enough. This is, this is engineering. We do things with precision." So these guys, using wood. And Stanley Shore forms had formed a whole 2002 replacement, which looked like exactly what it was. It looked like it was carved out of a block of wood with the edges with the edges rounded off. So the workmanship and all the chrome molding, everything was perfect, but the car itself was a disaster. So I said, "Well, Herr Hofmeister, excuse me, but this thing has no grace." no shape, no tumble home, no plan view when you look at it from the top. I mean, everything, it, it, it looks like the box it came in. And he says, well, what do you suggest we do? I said, well, you got to modify it. It needs a faster windshield. It needs the side glass rolled in. It needs a different rear end. It needs a different front end. And he said, well, we can't do that. The model's finished. I said, this is the first time anybody's seen it. He says, "Well, we're not ready to show it yet, but it's finished." So I said, "Look, Hofmeister, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell the CEO that as head of sales, I cannot accept responsibility for this car when it goes on the market." And I would suggest that you do like Opel and Ford do—you start doing clay models, and then. You clay models you can do relatively fast. You can change them easily. Uh, you can show them to top management early on. You can get top management direction. And you don't get yourself into a box where you've done this work of art, uh, this beautiful artifact, which is shaped wrong. So I went to talk to Von Kuhnheim, and he said, well, uh, and some of the some of the body engineers and some of the designers had worked at either Opel or Ford, and they knew about clay models. And, th- you know, there was a consensus that it was something we should do. So von Kuhnheim said, well, yeah, we ought to do that uh, and set up a real styling department. And uh, we did have a good, on the on paper, we had a chief designer, a Frenchman by the name of Paul Brock, who was highly skilled, but he reported to body engineering, and body engineering wouldn't let him do anything. So he was there nominally, but he was ineffective. So we tried to get some clay, and all the clay in Germany had been pre-assigned to Opel and Fort. And I called up Dave Holz at Opel, and I said, hey, Dave, we've got a problem. Um uh, uh, we need clay models, and we can't get clay. And he says, oh, that's not a problem. I'll, I'll divert a couple of shipments that were, we don't really need it. We've got plenty. We just like to you know, make sure we don't run short. I'll send a few tons down your way. I said, wow, great. He said, "While well, well, I'm at it. Uh, do any of your guys know how to do the wooden armatures? And I said, no, probably not. He said, well, I'll, I'll send some of the skilled trade guys down there. And uh, we'll we'll send some modelers and we'll basically help you get set up. Because remember, at the time, General Motors was doing millions of cars a year. Opel alone was doing a million a year. And BMW was doing 180,000. So General Motors considered BMW to be a lovable curiosity, uh, a brand we all like, but they'll never be a threat. So nobody considered it inappropriate. For and everybody wondered why I went to BMW. By the way, after leaving a leaving the mothership, so the the whole design department at BMW uh, with the uh, the big steel tables, the wooden armatures, the measuring equipment, how to make the templates. Which this was obviously before laser scanning how to lay on the Dynac? whole design department was set up for BMW by General Motors, which you won't find in any BMW history book.
0: Unbelievable. I love it. I Yeah, I'd certainly never heard that. And you're probably one of the, the few people that were right there at the intersection of those and brokered the deal. So thank, thanks for sharing that story with, uh, with us. I'm sure a bunch of the bmw fans that listen to this are going to be somewhat shocked by shocked by that uh i actually used to work for bmw north america and have a bunch of bmw colleagues that i'm going to share that story with i'm wondering what uh, waves that's going to make mr lutz
1: well you know there were only two companies in outside of the italian bodybuilders but there were only two companies in europe that were actually doing styling the american way and that was ford and general motors and chrysler to the extent they they still had a european operation but everybody else was basically doing body engineering and uh... and and engineers don't like clay because they don't think it's precise enough well you know nowadays with scanning and computer smoothing uh, you can get it down to the tenth of a millimeter but at any rate yeah well uh, bmw as a company was small and uh the bike business was was a mess too uh losing money hand over fist but i have another great bmw anecdote uh which is another one that is shocking to bmw uh, bmw worshipers and don't get me wrong bmw is a great company but you know they they didn't invent everything they no no company has invented everything no no company is at the forefront of everything what what bmw predominantly had was uh, senior management that by and large was not comprised of car guys uh but the next level down the chief engineers the chief engine engineer etc cetera, etc cetera, uh, these guys were top-notch professionals and so BMW, almost regardless of what top management did, there were guys at the next level who were incapable of doing the wrong thing. So, uh, and finance, this was a blessing finance didn't have a lot to say at BMW. In fact, all of the vehicles missed their cost objectives by a country mile. And then the vehicles were merely repositioned as premium, like the, the, the original 1600 and 2002s were supposed to compete with the Volkswagen Beetle and with the Opel Cadet. And when they came out, they saw they were like a 2,000 marks over the cost objectives, so they priced them to make money, and the public saw the value in them, and they became premium partly because they were premium, but partly also because they were price premium. So BMW kept missing its cost objectives, and then they kept positioning the cars above where they were originally supposed to be positioned, and it worked. So it was a curious thing of the the technology or the technician guys knowing what they were doing, but the administration and Finance guys being pretty much, not you know not in the picture. But here's one: we used to have 40th anniversary celebrations for hourly workers who had spent 40 years with BMW, and this was in the early 70s. So clearly, you thought 40 years? You go all the way back into the 40s during the war. During the war, so uh, and we had a, a beerstube, which is like a little room in a beer hall, all pine paneled and uh, with beer, a little bar with beer taps. And we'd always have these celebrations at 10 o'clock in the morning. And a local butcher would bring in the hot vice and the mustard and a baker would bring in the big uh, Oktoberfest style pretzels. And then Spaten brewery would bring a big keg of beer. And, uh, and then we'd have bottles of schnapps and basically, uh, and then we'd all wear our Bavarian tuxedos, which was our, our loading jackets with the bone buttons. And uh, and then we'd celebrate this hourly guy with the 40 years uh, time. Well, this one day, Von Kunheim couldn't make it and other senior execs, m- members of the management board couldn't make it. So they sent me. And I introduced myself, and, uh, and I said, where do you work? And he says, well, I work in the experimental engine shop. And I said, oh, so what do you do? He said, well, uh, I work, I make parts for experimental engines. I do machining on experimental engine parts and so forth. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. So what did you do during the war? He said, oh, uh, I, I've always been in engines, and I've always been – experimental engines and prototype engines. And During the war, I was on aircraft engines. I said, ha, amazing, because I'm an airplane fan, and I've got to ask you something for which nobody has ever been able to give me a reasonable answer, and that's this. And that's Heinkel, Messerschmitt, Dornier, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody used Liquid cooled V12s, except BMW. BMW used these 18 cylinder air cooled radials as seen on the Fokker Wolf FW 190. So, why was BMW at odds with the rest of German industry that producing liquid cooled V12s and BMW produces these twin row air cooled radials? I said, oh, that's because we were were a Pratt & Whitney licensee.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Honestly, that, yeah. And that was a surprise to you. Tell us a little bit more there. I mean, the the Pratt & Whitney connection would have been a crazy surprise. Is that right?
1: Well, it blew me away. I mean, uh, and this was, you know, this is one of these facts that's carefully concealed in all the official BMW history. They want people to think, they they even had handouts when I was there, was a little book of semi-transparent pages, and it was the BMW World War II radial engine in sort of a three-quarter view, and you peel off sheet after sheet, and you'd get deeper and deeper into the disassembly of the engine until finally when you got to the last sheet, all you had was the round cylinder block with 18 holes in it. Then, you know, the next sheet, you laid the next sheet over it, you got the crankshaft, the next sheet, you got the cab shaft and the push rod, and so on, so uh, you could visually basically disassemble the engine. That was a popular piece. The dealers loved it because they could give it to a customer and say, you know, here's what BMW did on the aircraft engine side. And nowhere, nowhere was Pratt & Whitney ever mentioned, and I'm sure that if this guy's bosses had known that he told me that BMW had been, that that engine was not a BMW design, but that they were basically during World War II producing an American engine design. So it was the same engine that was in the Corsair, the same engine that was in the uh, Thunderbolt. So we basically had the same engine on both sides of the atlantic and on both sides of the war uh built to the same design
0: that's amazing and sometimes you know you never know what's going to start uh what information's going to start flowing after a couple Spaten at the beer stuba with the uh, crew yeah. is that right
1: oh that nobody needed lunch after one of those 10 o'clock celebrations <laughs>
2: I love that. I, we'll keep that in mind for BAT. I wish that was more uh, socially acceptable to do today with the uh, 10 a.m. start time. I'd certainly be in for that. Um, I'd love to ask, you know, I remember, and I was a little kid when you, when you were paling around with my, with my old man and in, in the nineties, uh, you've always obviously loved the kind of design performance and hobby side of all this car stuff. Uh, we actually on BAT recently have, uh, was helping your, uh, old colleague, Francois Castang, you and him were probably the two most uh, important guys in the whole Viper uh, project and making that a reality. Um, he's been selling off some of his collection on VAT, great guy. One of the cars he sold recently was a, was a Chrysler 300, and you'll have to uh, set the record straight for me because this is a story I, I heard, but I was not actually there for. Uh, you came, somehow my dad got uh, the Chrysler Corporation to sponsor the California Melee back in the 90s, probably thanks to your help. Um, and that of uh, who Tom Kowaleski. That's a story for another day. Um, yeah,
0: we,
1: I, I was your dad's co-driver in uh, the Milimilia with his black Chrysler three hundred, and I, 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 showed him, I showed him how to double clutch downshift that two-speed automatic, which was a you know a huge performance limiter. Uh, but the three hundred handled well, and your dad had. Uh, Michelin radials on it, so it, it handled, it it actually went down the road straight, but what it didn't have was brakes. It had, uh, I mean, I had mine retrofitted with disc brakes, which transformed your sense of confidence in the car, and they weren't visible from the outside, so it, it didn't, you know, hurt it aesthetically, but your dad said, only sissies have disc brakes, and he, he, he was uh, an adherent of the Bugatti School of Engineering, which was, I built my cars to go, not to stop. But the Mille Milia had many, many steep downhill portions with a lot of twisties down through the woods. And, and, uh, and the 300, of course, was a heavy car. It's like over 5,000 pounds with these tiny little drum brakes. And your, your dad would accelerate between corners and then I noticed we were going faster and faster, and I said, "Martin, listen, this is this is this is getting irresponsibly fast." And he said, "I know, I know, I'm doing the best I can." So he had, I, I, we were basically out of brakes, uh, and we we barely make it to the bottom, and then it'd go uphill, and by the time we got to the top, the brakes would be okay again. And I say, "Martin, this is you know you can't." drive this thing with these non-existent brakes and he said, well what's your problem we're okay aren't we did we crash said, no he says well then everything's okay what are you beefing about so your dad had a uh, he loved that car but i i taught him how to downshift it and the way you did it was when you were in drive you briefly flicked it into neutral added a big gob of throttle, and then slammed it into low. And you could get a seamless throttle blip downshift with no jerk. And your dad just loved that. He's, he was so happy I taught him that. Um, your dad was a great guy and a, a superb car guy. And uh, we had a lot of fun in the at the Mille Miglio with that Chrysler 300, I'll tell you. But it was... Um, butt puckering at times because he was fast. He was safe, but he was fast.
2: He was. And, and I recall a story, and you'll have to tell me if this is true or not. You You were driving a Chrysler 300, I think that 55 black one, oh yeah here in uh, California and uh, uh, you were we were up in the you were up in the far north in in the town of Eureka and and your car was having a problem so you pulled into the Chrysler local Chrysler service center in Eureka and you were the president of Chrysler at the time and I don't know if you recall this story but you know the service guys looked at you and said you know what's this guy doing here in his old Chrysler and you know you said well I'm you know Mr. Lux and I you know having some trouble with my car, hoping you can help me. And I also, you know, happened to be the president. And I think half of them said, you know, what's this guy talking about? And half said, oh, shit, this is, you know, who would ever thought this would happen in the little old town of Eureka? Do, do you recall that at all?
1: Yeah, I recall going into the dealership. That was my my red 300, which I had bought in Michigan from a semi-reliable guy, and it was the chassis was OK. Uh, Especially after I fixed it up with, uh, after that Mili Miglia, I really went through the whole car, put in uh, a a Toyota Supra front stabilizer bar, 22 millimeters thick, which prevented any body lean, uh, adjustable Coney shocks, um, uh, a a three-speed torque flight out of a Dodge Ram pickup disc brake. So once it got fixed up, it was a phenomenally fast, uh, well handling car. But at that Million it, it just kept having electrical problems. And it, it just keep draining the battery and none of the instruments worked. It turned out, you know, many false starts later, it turned out that the guy who had put it back together after the paint and upholstery restoration, had switched the wires switched the wires switched the wires on the voltage regulator and it just totally messed up the electrical system to where stuff would sometimes work other times it didn't temperature gauge wouldn't work or, uh, uh, et cetera. etc it, it was such a stupid little problem that caused so much grief and yet it took so long to figure it out
2: Okay, Randy's taking notes. He actually has a fifty-six three hundred. So, Randy, you're, you're jotting down super stabilizer bar, and uh, these are all the crib notes to make that thing really go. Man, I, I'm writing
0: as fast as I can here, and I want you. Also, just taught me how to downshift my uh, two-speed that I have in my fifty-six, which is a push button, as you know, which is a weird transmission to try to actually use uh, in anything in anything more than a, you know a, a comfy cruise. So, driving that thing on events, which I've done with my dad, uh, kind of inspired by what you guys were doing with those 300s. It's a, it's an interesting beast. And I still have all four drums too. Uh-huh.
1: Well, there is an outfit in California that sells a disc brake conversion. And you know, you're not really doing anything wrong because you can keep all your drum brake parts and, etc. Uh, etc. et cetera. And if you sell the car, you can always, uh, provide the original drum brake parts. If somebody is a, uh, a, a, a sort of a numbers numbers matching guy, but if you drive these old cars, they're just so much more fun and safer to drive with front discs.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping uh, to make that an upgrade that we can do on the Chrysler. We've we've uh, had it on a couple thousand miles events and noticed the exact same thing. If you're going downhill on a windy road, it's like, oh my goodness. So, but thankfully the brake pedal is as wide as two full. Uh, you know shoes that you're wearing it's a gigantic brake I think uh, pedal I think they thought you'd need both feet to stop that car so Uh, anyhow it it still won't stop because (laughs) what you're
1: doing is you're 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 building up a layer of uh, steam between the shoes and the drums and the drums get so hot they expand faster than you than you can pump the
0: brake pedal and finally you're just coasting yeah. <laughs> That's no what it did, of, like.
1: No amount of pedal pressure is going to stop that car. So uh, drum brakes on these old cars are pretty scary.
0: Yep. Martin Zweig never would have agreed with that, but he, uh, he had some cool front drums and he he drove the wheels off him. I love that story. Thank you so much for, for sharing that story. So yeah, we're, we're uh, at an hour worth of length here, man. I could go on and, and talk. This is a real mountaintop experience for me here in Chrysler's and here in old BMW days and Opal, all this sort of stuff. Um, I'd love to just ask one final question of you, if you wouldn't mind, which is, you know, if you had had maybe more time or approval from a different company or different budget, what's one thing you weren't able to Knock out in your illustrious automotive career that you really wish you could have either had the time or the space or the, the knowledge at the time or, or something like that that was just sort of always out there and, and almost hard to hard to grasp
1: uh, that's a good question there' uh, first of all um, I, w- I I strongly believe that to put Cadillac back into the category of aspirational luxury brands. Cadillac needed a two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand uh dollar flagship. A la Cadillac sixteen uh, concept car that we did for the Detroit show. And I I, I think for a luxury brand to reestablish itself it it needed the modern equivalent of the 1930s Cadillac 16. It needed something really big. It needed a strong statement. It needed a car that was, you know, maybe maybe only produce 500 a year. And clearly it's not something you make money on, but uh, to rebuild the brand and make people proud to own a Cadillac I I think that would have been the right thing to do, but you know, I could, I I could just, it was, it was too big a project. Would have cost too much? We did build a few of the V 16 engines. That wasn't the problem, but to get a a unique chassis, unique body uh, we would have had to spend close to a billion dollars for something that you sell almost none. And uh, I, I, there was just no way we could make it look rational. And still, in my mind, I, I know it would have been the right thing to do.
0: Fantastic. I remember some of those concept cars that they had, which were super, super impressive. Yeah, it would have been cool if those could have come to light. Um, well, Mr. Lutz, thank you so much for your time. Unbelievable. This has been my favorite hour in a while. And uh, I'm sure that the BAT audience will, uh, will love it and enjoy hearing from you sort of firsthand from the horse's mouth of all these amazing stories you've had. We, uh, we're excited to list the pin scour for you. This is going to be a fun, uh, fun week exercise and excited to see where that goes. Um, and always just look forward to connecting and, and appreciate your time for us.
1: Thanks very much, guys. Always fun to reminisce.
0: Absolutely. All right. We'll be in touch with you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.